Good morning, everyone. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. You're right. Yeah. Um, so if you haven't met me, my name is Scott. I am a chaplain in UCD, and I'm also part of coordinating the Young Adults Ministry here in the church. Um, so a couple quick, a first quick announcement on that. Young Adults is on Thursday nights. Um, we are still kind of gathering uh, in homes, playing games around food on Thursday nights just for the summer. So if you'd like more information on that, my email address is scott at htrinity.ie. Very simple. And then from next, sept- uh, from next Thursday, that's September 5th, we'll be in the church um, starting with a social night. So, and if you're wondering, like, am I a young enough adult? Um, I hear you. Um, I'm 36, and I represent the top point, I think, you know? And then every year, it'll just get later, and then one day we'll be, like, it'll be the young adults ministry, but we'll all be pensioners, but we'll still be here in Rathmines. So, um, the other thing I just wanted to highlight as well is Rubicon is coming up October 12th. Um, the focus of Rubicon this year is kind of looking at I think some of the things that are really on the hearts of a lot of people in the world at the moment, um, in terms of the growth, the, the, the massive uptick, it feels like, in fear and hatred around the world. Um, and so what this has meant for, um, for different communities um, for, who are persecuted, like the Uyghur Muslims in China, or um, you know, the stories of kids being held in cages, um, and the, the genocide of the Rohingya in, in Myanmar, but also closer to home, like looking at um, the effects we're still having of the troubles or, or recent in- instances of Islamophobia. And we wish all of this stuff wasn't real and we wish it wasn't happening. We wish it, wasn't, it didn't seem to be growing in strength in the world, but it is. And it's a tale as old as time. Throughout history, we've always been afraid of what we do not know and particularly of people we do not know. And so, we've, um, so the theme for this year uh, for Rubicon is identity, inclusion, and intersectionality. Um, and it's... Um, and we, what we want to do this year is we want to confront how the realities of identity, inclusion, intersect with a world of increasing fear and hatred, and to explore who we are called to be and how we are called to be together. So it's a day-long conference at the Sugar Club, October 12th, and early bird tickets are on sale at wearerubicon.com. So, cool. Uh, we're continuing our traveling companion series. So um, we are joining Jesus and the disciples on their continued journey towards Jerusalem. Um, the first, if you were to divide the book up into thirds, the first third is kind of Jesus' formative years and the beginning of his ministry in Galilee. The final ten, year, the final ten chapters is about um, the, kind of his last week following from like Palm Sunday um, uh, through to the death and resurrection. And then in the middle, there's this weird middle bit, and it's the journey from... Um, from Galilee to Jerusalem. And throughout it, we get like hints of liberation um, and, tra- and the transformation that is to come with the coming of the kingdom of God. And we realize that Jesus here is actually preparing the disciples for life without him by journeying with them. And so that the encounters that he has um, and the sermons that he preaches, they're part of embodying the value of the kingdom of God that is bursting into the world. This isn't just him revealing who he is or what he's like. It's him demonstrating to them who they are called to be. And through it, we learn who we are called to be. So the passage that we're in this morning is Luke chapter 13, verses 10 to 17. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. 
But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, there are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the manger and lead it away to give it water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he said this, all his opponents were put to shame, and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things that he was doing. The leader of the synagogue here, it's, it's kind of hard to know how to react to him. I have two, I think, primary emotions that go on when I read this story about him. The first thing is that deep, deep anger that so often happens when you hear a story of injustice. And you think, how can you be like this? He's indignant at a miracle. He's furious that somebody's life has changed. All because of his sense of religious rule and decorum. And so while everybody's gathering around, watching a woman be set free and have her life turned upside down, restored, redeemed, transformed, it says he was indignant and he kept saying to the crowd, come on a different day and be healed. This is God's day. What does it say about his faith, about the world in which he lives, about the God he claims to serve? And yet I also feel this like deep sense of pity for him because I think the leader of the synagogue is trapped. He's trapped within his own religious system. He cares more about what is prohibited than what is possible. He cares more about what is forbidden than he does about freedom. And he treats the Sabbath like it's something to protect, no matter what the cost is to the people the Sabbath was supposed to be for. One of my saddest memories from my early career as a youth worker when I was involved in a church, in a different church, <coughs> I should be clear, um, involved a similar uh, Sabbath controversy. And we had started up this youth group, and, and, uh, and on Sundays we're beginning to have um, kids who kind of like, they, some of their families came to church, but they were kind of disconnected from it, but they had started to come back in, and so we'd started to gather those kids during the service, and so the, you know, an adult would get up to preach, and we would gather the teens, and we would take them upstairs to the upper room, like the disciples, you know, and then there was this lovely cabinet in the room, and so what we did um, as youth leaders was we stocked this cabinet with chocolate and stuff like that, and we, and we, we had a little, uh, uh, a little money jar, and you'd come in, and you could pop in a little bit of money so that we could buy more chocolate, um, but, you know, you could grab your Twix or your or whatever, and you could sit down, and we could, you know, and then we could study the Bible together, or we could answer questions, or any of those different things. But eventually, a, a, a question arose in the church. Doesn't this mean we're doing business on the Sabbath? And so a decision was made at the church board, and the tuck shop was closed and locked, and the chocolate sat behind a locked door, because even though the church was closed the other six days of the week, it was the other six days on which you could buy a chocolate bar. This is the Lord's time. And that has always broken my heart because I know many of the students who had been at that youth group, they, that for them was kind of like the final straw. They were willing to give church one last chance, and church blew it. And they blew it on God's behalf. Like those church leaders, I think the synagogue leader in this passage 
He's obsessed with rules. He sees Sabbath about being what is prohibited rather than what it gives you permission for. You see, because Sabbath is about resting. It's about remembering that you are not what you do. It's about understanding that the world does not depend on your work ethic or your creative energy. As Rob Bell puts it, it's about remembering that when you stop working, the world does keep turning. Sabbath sets us free from the lie that the world needs me to keep working, to keep existing. Sabbath is permission to be human, to surrender control, to stop believing the lie that you are what you do and that you have to keep doing it. But the synagogue leader, he can't see that. And the wisdom and the wonder of Sabbath, they're lost on him. For him, it's just another rule to follow, another way to obey. But thankfully, Jesus has a bigger dream for his people than the religious elite do. And so he responds, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the manger and lead it away to give it water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, be set free from her bondage on this Sabbath day? That Monty Python part of my brain always wants to wonder if that woman, having been freed and straightening up, is then immediately offended by the fact that Jesus first goes, well, look at how you treat your oxes. (laughs) Pardon me. But when Jesus starts talking about oxen, it's actually, it's actually a rhetorical device. It's actually supposed to take us somewhere. And it's got two, there's like two streams that are going with it. The first is the initial, the obvious stream. It, it lies at the top layer. And the second is a, is a deeper one that takes us back into history and into context that actually is not just about a story in Luke 13, but is about the story of the whole Bible. The initial and the obvious one is he's accusing the religious leaders of treating their animal possessions better than they do, better than they treat the humans they are called to serve. And that's fair. And we live in a country that spends 90 million euro a year on homelessness and 84 million euro a year on dog food. So this isn't, this doesn't lack relevance to where we're at. And you can weigh that and we'll be like, well, you know, if you, can, if you, if you look at how he's... Blah, 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 fine. But the question I had for me when I was preparing this, the thing I really felt convicted by was, why do I feel so much more comfortable around stray animals than stray people? Why is it that I... When I'm in relationships that I can't control, I can't predict, feel like I'm on the back foot, because those are, all are the people that God has called us to serve. And then Jesus is also, he's doing this second thing. And he's actually bringing to mind, for those in the first century, a rabbinical debate at the time. There are 613 commandments in the Torah that Jewish people were required to follow. And as you can imagine, if there's 613 commandments, that means you sometimes find yourself in situations where they come into conflict, where you are in a situation where in order to fulfill one law, you're going to have to break another. And so the passage I think he's referring to is from Deuteronomy chapter 22, where it says this. You shall not watch your neighbor's ox or sheep straying away and ignore them. You shall take them back to their owner. If the owner does not reside near you or you do not know who the owner is, you shall bring it to your own house and it shall remain with you until the owner claims it. Then you shall return it. You should do the same thing with a neighbor's donkey. You should do the same with a neighbor's garment. And you shall do the same with anything else that your neighbor loses and that you find. 
you may not withhold your help. You shall not see your neighbor's donkey or ox fallen in the road and ignore it. You shall help to lift it up. One of the key examples of this rabbinical debate at the time was what happens if you find your neighbor's ox in a hole on the Sabbath? I don't know if you've ever lifted an ox before, um, but I think in the way that we, most of us categorize our lives, if we had to lift an ox out of a hole, we would call it work. So what happens when you find your neighbor's ox in a hole on the Sabbath and these two laws come into contradictory, they contradict each other. They force you to choose. And this is why the, the people kept coming to Jesus at the time saying, which law is the greatest? Which means which, when, you, when they come into conflict, which one do you keep? Which one are you prepared to break? And at the core of this debate is the question, what is my greatest responsibility? My duty to myself and to my religious observance or my duty to my neighbor? Which one matters more? And as I read this, I just kept coming back over and over again to that, that snippet of a little verse in Deuteronomy. Because it goes through, and I, I love the idea that God has to be so explicit. It's like, you know, if you find your neighbor's ox out um, and, you know, take it home uh, or bring it back to your neighbor, and then it's, it's almost like someone was in the crowd going, what if my neighbor doesn't live near me? Take it to your house, wait for your neighbor to be. What if I don't know whose ox it is? Just wait there. Somebody I'm sure will be along to get it. What about donkeys? Donkeys too. What about clothes? Anything else your neighbor has lost and you have found, just take it home and look after it. You can just imagine the building exasperation of religious people. We're so annoying. And it's almost like it's summed up in that one line towards the end. You may not withhold your help. Whatever way you're hoping to interpret this that gets you off the hook, that allows you to say, not my problem, no, you may not withhold your help. And yet, the synagogue leader, as a miracle is unfolding in front of him, as liberation is being born out in flesh, he's not just withholding his help. He's withholding so much more. Because in his holding back, he's withholding his compassion. The saddest thing about the synagogue leader is not his, it's not just his slavery to his religion that causes him to miss the point and miss the miracle. Which, both are tragic. The saddest thing is that his religion has robbed him of compassion for those who are suffering and encounter with them. Which all this week has had me asking these questions. Is, is, my, is my practice of my faith robbing me of relationships with people? Am I so busy judging the world that I'm forgetting to love it, experience it, and weep for it? we find in the Deuteronomy law, you will not withhold your help. And in Jesus, we find a God who 
comes into our world in flesh and does not withhold his tears. Instead, he brings his love, he brings himself deeply into our experience. He walks the journeys that we walk. He experiences the pain and the suffering that we do. As everyone else wants to keep moving along the road, he pauses for the voice that's crying out. As nobody else notices somebody reaching out for healing, it is he who stops. And she says to herself, now I cannot go unnoticed. It is he who, on the cross, as he's being crucified, watches his mother and John and then commands them to look after each other because even in the throes of death, he's looking out saying, who's going to look after my mother? And who's going to look after this disciple? Religion, at its worst, becomes a way of us protecting ourselves from the human experience and trying to reduce it to simple rules and formulas and principles that help us to understand life. As if all we need to do is is obey the right rules, tick the right boxes, and then we'll be protected from the sadness, the suffering, the sickness, and whatever else it is that comes along the way. But that's religion at its worst. It's not us trying to find God. It's us trying to be God and reduce life to a thing that we can control. Religion, at its best, is when you don't withhold anything. Not just your help, but you don't withhold your tears, you don't withhold your love, you don't withhold your passion, you don't withhold your presence. And you especially don't do so in the name of Jesus, who breaks into the world, inviting people to transformation, liberation, redemption. Our faith is at its worst when, we, when it causes us to become mostly indignant and to miss the miracles that are happening in our community, the ways in which the lives of the people that we love are changing. And it's at its best when we find ourselves like Jesus. willing to potentially break all the rules for the sake of the one who is suffering. Because John 3.16 does not read, for God so loved the rules that he created a bunch of people to obey them. It reads, for God so loved the world that he gave himself for it to bring about its redemption. Let's pray. Jesus, I know my temptation to withhold. I know much how much I long to protect myself from the stories of people who are hurting. How much easier it can feel sometimes to close my heart. But may we not be those people. May we not withhold our help. May we weep with your tears. Love with your love. Lead with your blood. Live with your life. So that your kingdom might come in and through us. 
and that in withholding, or in refusing to withhold, we find ourselves taking a hold of the future that you want to bring about. In your name, amen.